Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Drive through almost any neighborhood in Macon-Bibb County, and you're apt to spot some houses with crumbling facades, shuttered windows, and overgrown lawns. Those are among the county's nearly 4,000 unoccupied properties. Most are only in poor or fair condition, but more than 400 are in such bad shape they need to be demolished. Samantha Max has just wrapped up a series on blight for the Macon Telegraph, and she's joining us now from GBB in Macon. Hello, Samantha. Hi. Hi. Well, you have walked and driven through Macon, gathering data, taking photographs, talking with residents, nearly all of them having seen their corners of the city fall into disrepair. Kings Park is one of those neighborhoods. Could you describe what that part of town looks like for us? Yeah, so Kings Park is a subdivision on the very eastern edge of Bibb County. Um, It was built in 1970, and it was, at the time, this really idyllic neighborhood. Um, And, you know, it's just about a dozen little side streets that all loop into one another. But over the years, it's really deteriorated. Um, You know, dozens of properties sit vacant, and you'll have one house where there's a homeowner that's lived there for decades and still weeds their lawn and keeps their house nice and fresh and clean. And then next door, there'll be, you know, a vacant house with boarded up windows and the roof caving in and weeds several feet high. That sounds like something that North Macon resident Marjorie Harrison talked with you about. Here's what she had to say. I don't know what the answer to blight is, but if they don't catch it, nip it in the bud then it escalates. I know that they are trying to do some whole neighborhoods right now, but uh, that that is really not the way to do it. To me, you need to start wherever there's good stuff and there's one thing that is messed up, correct that before it just... Now, Marjorie told you that people are moving away because of blight, but didn't Macon's blight problem begin before the present when and why? Yeah, so blight has a long history in Macon, as it does in so many other cities throughout the county. Um, And there's not just one cause. It's really a compounding of factors. One is, you know, going back to the middle of last century when you saw white flight. You saw people moving out of the cities and into the suburbs, into newer developments. Um, And there were houses that were left behind. There were people that were left behind. Um... You factor in a surge of -of out-of-town landlords coming in, buying up properties, hoping to rent them out, and then deciding that they don't really want to put in the effort to be in the landlord business, letting the houses sit vacant and not taking care of them. Um, Then you've got heirs of people who, you know, they grew up in the home, their parents or their relative passed away. They left it to maybe one child or maybe a few children or cousins, and no one really wants to come back to town and take care of it or just doesn't have the resources to. Um, So it's really just all different reasons that kind of work together. You've also got people that might be in a nursing home and just not able to take care of their home. 
And yeah, there's just no easy way to then come in because the only person that's really responsible is the property owner. Mm -hmm. Um, So if the property owner can't take care of it, then you're kind of stuck with your hands tied behind your back. Right. And then there are all these back taxes that accumulate, so it costs more and more money to save them. But are these 3,800 properties mostly homes, or does that number include businesses too? It's almost entirely homes. Mm -hmm. I would say about 400 of them are commercial properties or institutional properties, um, but it's almost all residential homes. Are they all concentrated in one part of Macon or all over? All over. Um, I mean, they're definitely, for the most part, concentrated within the city limits, um, but it's really throughout Bibb County. It touches, I mean, I think what was really striking about working on this series is, I mean, the areas where you have one house after the next is vacant, I would say, are mostly in low-income neighborhoods in the city. But then you go out to these suburbs where, you know, you've got upper-middle-class people living there, and they have their own version of blight. It might look a little bit different. It might look like, oh, you know, the house is vacant. They're not cutting the grass. They're not bringing the trash cans in. Um, But it might also be, you know, a house that's completely dilapidated and threatening to bring down a neighborhood that before was pretty stable. And how do residents in these neighborhoods feel about the abandoned or neglected properties lining their streets? So the one thing that's universal is frustration. Um, Just in the past two days since the last story ran, I've probably gotten at least half a dozen emails and phone calls and Facebook messages of people in all different neighborhoods throughout the county telling me they're going through the same thing. They are calling their county commissioners, they're calling code enforcement, they're filing complaints, you know, and they're, they just feel like there's nothing they can do, no one is listening, and they're really frustrated because, you know, people pay taxes and they want to live here, but they want, you know, their neighborhoods to be safe and to be clean and for people to take pride in them and to feel like their elected officials and their government agencies are also doing their part. I'm speaking with Samantha Max, who covers health for the Macon Telegraph, and we're discussing our series on blight in Macon-Bibb County, where more than 4,000 properties lie vacant. That is a question. You cover health. How did you get into the urban neighborhood blight beat? That's a funny uh, answer, I guess. Um, You know, I think When I think about health, I think about the overall health and well-being of a community. Um, And a lot of the stories that I've gravitated towards, you know, I started with a lot of stories about access and then getting into, you know, I was seeing time and again just these issues of parts of our community and people in our community that were being left behind um, and that their stories weren't being told. And the blight You know, I think one thing when I moved to Macon, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, and when I saw all of these unoccupied structures falling into decay, a lot of them, you know, just a block from our newsroom, I was just so struck by, you know, the amount of it. And then I found out that we had a major shortage of code enforcement officers. So I ended up doing a story where I did a ride along with the director of code enforcement at the time. And he was telling me, you know, 
this issue is so huge and so we just are not equipped to take care of it. So I thought, hmm, why don't I look into what the county is doing? I knew that in 2015, um, we had taken out $14 million in bonds to address blight and we're just getting to the end of that money now. So I wanted to check in on the neighborhoods that have gotten an infusion of money and see you know, how are these communities being affected? What more needs to be done? And also, you know, I think a lot of the communities I went into, the Telegraph has either never reported on or the only reporting you see coming out about it is reporting on crime and Mm -hmm. violence. And I wanted to tell the story of the people who live there in their own voices um, and not just focus on the negative, uh, but focus on why they love their communities, why they've stayed, why they're investing in it, and what they hope to see in the future. Well, there is research connecting blight to crime. 2016 study of low-income neighborhoods in Philadelphia found that firearm violence decreased when vacant lots were properly maintained. Another study found that demolishing vacant buildings in Saginaw, Michigan, reduced crime on the block by as much as 8%. What are some of the other data points on the consequences of blight on a community? Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about how you would feel living next to um, a bunch of blighted properties, it a lot of the kind of results that studies have found are pretty intuitive. You know, we see higher rates of mental illness, higher rates of chronic illness, um, poor nutrition, and a lot of things aren't necessarily causation, but right. correlation. Correlated to uh, poverty in general. Exactly, because a lot of these are low-income neighborhoods that haven't gotten the investment, whether it's from the government or from grocery stores wanting to come in, from you know the education system. So it's all kind of just a ripple effect. You mentioned the frustration with city officials and the $14 million bond. How has that money been spent and has it been effective? I think that's a really good question. You know, basically $5 million were spent on certain special projects and then the remaining $9 million, each commissioner was allowed to decide how they wanted to spend it um, in coordinates with our blight consultant, Cass Hatcher, and the idea was that they couldn't just bulldoze houses. There needed to be some end use for the vacant lots um, because they ended up bulldozing about a little bit more than 200 properties. Um, But, you know, they created some pocket parks, they created some community centers, upgraded lighting, things like that. Um, But some of the people that I've talked to have said that this could cost as much as 30 or 40 million more dollars mm. to really solve. Um, and actually, a few county commissioners recently put up a proposal to take out 35 million more dollars, um, and that was tabled. So they're still kind of fighting to try to make that happen now. We've also got $11 million in SPLOST funding that's been devoted to blight to be used, I believe, over the next 10 years. But for all those things, um, the end use has to be some sort of community-serving use. So you can't just, you know, bulldoze and rebuild homes for people to live in. It would have to be some sort of community center or community park. So it just kind of limits your options a little bit. So I think people want to see how can you invest the money back into the community in a way that will really impact the people who live there now or people who would want to move in there and really take care of the neighborhood as well. 
Well, Samantha, I'm aware that this is your last week in Macon, and you're moving to Nashville for another job in June. So how are you reflecting on your time in Macon as you prepare to leave, especially having this story, as you mentioned, on neighborhoods that really hadn't been previously well covered for The Telegraph? It's a really um, bittersweet moment for me. It has been such a pleasure and a privilege to be reporting on this community. I have met so many amazing people through my reporting that will stay in my life forever. Actually, after I get off this interview, I'm going out to Kings Park to go meet up with one of the women that I met in my reporting there. Um, And, you know, I I am worried. It is a difficult time for local news outlets um, and our communities deserve this in-depth coverage. I think that not only Can they inform the public and inform the people who live in these communities? But it builds empathy. Um, You know, it's one thing to give data and statistics. It's another thing to report on crimes that are happening. But to really understand where you live, you need to also hear from the people who live there and give them the platform to share their stories in an authentic way. Um, And that's really always been my mission. And... I hope that that will continue at The Telegraph and at local newspapers across the country because the response I've gotten has just been really hardening. Um, You know, I think when you write a big story about a community, you're always worried, how are they going to respond? Are they going to think it's fair? Um, And, you know, I've gotten messages from people that I've written about telling me, you're part of our family now, Mm. or, you know... um, One of the stories I wrote about a neighborhood called Fort Hill, Um, you know, the lead of the story was a man who is a rapper and he had been a drug dealer. And I mentioned all of that in the story. And he told me that the story made him cry. And I think when you make a 44-year-old former drug dealer cry tears of happiness, you know you've done your job fairly. Samantha, you have and we will miss you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgians continue to grapple with cybersecurity after a string of recent attacks. Georgia Tech's administration now offers to cover credit monitoring fees for the 1.3 million individuals affected by a data breach last month. And Georgia-based Equifax will spend hundreds of millions of dollars in legal costs after data from more than 143 million of its customers were stolen. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom spoke with GPB's Ricky Bevington about new measures to prevent hackers from attacking the city's computer infrastructure, which last year was frozen by hackers demanding ransom. They also talked about the seeming invasion of scooters and the rising costs of living in the city and her recent move to close the Atlanta City Detention Center. Mayor Bottoms, it's a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, Atlanta City Council voting yesterday to create a task force to study closing the Atlanta City Detention Center. It costs the city about $32 million a year to run. And after the vote, you tweeted your support for closing it. Why is this a priority? This is a priority for our administration because we've talked so very long about criminal justice reform. So when you're talking about the Atlanta City Detention Center, you are talking about a facility that over many, many decades has housed thousands of people. And so there um, are a lot of thoughts about 
how that facility is currently run, but also the potential to service our community. So this the step that we took with Atlanta City Council on yesterday was to take a formal step to make sure that we are now creating a commission um, essentially comprised of former inmates of community community leaders, internal staff to help us chart the next course in this. So we are excited to be moving into this next phase. Well, transparency, of course, is in priority. You entered office just over about a year and a half ago now. So uh, of all the things that you've been doing with transparency and restoring the public trust, do you think Atlantans do see you as independent from the prior administration's ethics problems? I think people have always seen me as independent. I think there have been um, what I call dedicated detractors uh, who have wanted to, I guess, assign my intelligence or my work ethic to someone else. But the reality is that I've always been independent and our administration has always been independent. And I, I really hope that over the last year and a half, people have seen that just in terms of the leadership team that we've created, the steps that we've taken to give people more open access to information related to how we are operating the city. And uh, I, I think our work really should speak for itself. And I think to the extent that people don't think that I am independent or our administration is independent, I don't think that they ever will. It was March 2018. You had been inaugurated, what, two months prior. What a way to start uh, your, your, your time in office. And for background, cyber attackers infected municipal computers. Five key city departments were infected with ransomware, I believe. They wanted about $50,000 in ransom. And actually, a professor at Kennesaw State University has a question about Atlanta's cyber attack. Andrew Green is a lecturer of information security and assurance at KSU. And Andrew asks, are all city systems at full functionality after the ransomware attack? And what is your overall confidence level in the city IT and cybersecurity leadership? My confidence level is extremely high. The only department that is still not at 100 percent, my understanding, is still municipal court. There was um, still some upgrades that we needed to do in that area. But what it's given us an opportunity to do is to actually create the system that we really should have had to begin with. When we were attempting to recover from the cyber attack, it was um, it was very interesting to even try and identify where the servers were, and it was personnel going, oh, I think there is one over here and there may be one there. And it really highlighted what a hodgepodge way that we were running such an important system. So we've transitioned to the cloud. We are, I would probably say, 98 to 99 percent there in terms of being fully functional. But more than that, we've also been able to take a leap and improve our systems in a way that we otherwise may not have had without uh, the cyber attack. Many people may or may not know we did not pay the ransom. And my belief was that even had we paid the ransom, we could not be guaranteed that we would get our systems back. And as I've mentioned, um, the systems were in such poor shape anyway my thought was that we would take the hit and hurt for a bit to get to where we need it to be. And thankfully, it's worked out on the other end.
affordable housing has been a major question among our audience members. It isn't all, you know, super heavy stuff, but people really do want to know things about homelessness, living wage, uh, whether housing will stay affordable for Atlantans currently living here and people who want to move here. So let's just for some background, according to the latest census data, about 22% of people live in poverty, according to uh, census, 9% of households make less than $10,000 a year. So be positive 0611 asks, can the city of Atlanta enact a living wage for those who work inside city limits? I think that that would be a challenge for us to regulate private employers. But what we have done as a city is enacted a living wage. So we we phased it over several years. We initially took up city employees to $13 an hour then to 14 an hour, and this fiscal year will be going up to 15 an hour. And very proud to have sponsored that legislation as a member of city council. But our hope has been, as we take the lead as a city, that our private employers will also follow that lead. But I think without some type of state regulation, it would it wouldn't be possible for us to do that. Well, you know, a living wage is part of the larger question of affordability for all types of housing around Atlanta. We have the Beltline building units. You say affordable. What does that mean? Well, in the city of Atlanta, we've appointed our first chief housing officer, a woman by the name of Terry Lee, who is doing incredible work on our behalf. And the important part of her appointment was that we had a lot of very well-intentioned players. Um, We had the City of Atlanta, Invest Atlanta, Beltline, Atlanta Housing, many of our private developers. But we weren't all coordinated in the conversation on what affordability means in Atlanta and how do we achieve these goals. So for the first time, we're actually sitting around the table having this discussion. For the first time, we're also tracking dollars. Some of this will be old money, meaning money that we've gotten each year. Some of it will be new money. But the thing that we've realized that for Atlanta to truly be affordable and for us to be able to control affordability, we've got to begin acquiring property in the city. We have to be able to control permanent affordable housing in the city. And what I want people to understand, it's not the model that we got away from 20 years ago, meaning we're not going back to a housing project model, but it means that we have an assortment, a array of choices for people in this city where they can live with dignity and they can also be able to afford a place in the city. So the only way that we can do that is if we own the property. So it may mean that we have to start acquiring property. It also means that we'll have to start redeveloping property. So when we talk about affordability in 2019, it's not just about someone who's living below the poverty line. It may be a school teacher or it may be someone who works in the cafeteria. It may be a police officer people who are making reasonable salaries, but to the extent that their housing options aren't available in our city, then it's not affordable to them. Gentrification is a word that's that's used all the time in conjunction with the affordable housing uh, conversation and enabling people to stay in their homes when their neighborhood is changing. Do you have any specific policies vis-a-vis gentrification? I think that people need to understand what gentrification is. I think that people 
very um, people very ignorantly think that gentrification is related to race and don't recognize sometimes that African-Americans are gentrifiers, especially in the city of Atlanta, because gentrification is an economic conversation. And I think that, one, we have to be informed on what gentrification means. Secondly, not take the position that redevelopment is always bad, but take the position that when and if redevelopment comes, how do we preserve our neighborhoods? How do we preserve our legacy residents? How do we make sure that the people who have stuck with these communities have an opportunity to remain in these communities, especially with our senior communities, creating opportunities for our seniors to age in place, meaning that when they age out of their homes, that they don't have to move 30 miles from where they own their home, that there are places for them to live, again, with dignity. Because it's not just about having affordable housing. It's about having opportunities for people to live with dignity. And I think that's the beauty of Atlanta. These diverse neighborhoods, whether it's racial diversity, whether it's socioeconomic diversity. Uh, But I think the biggest part is educating our communities on what gentrification means and how we can have redevelopment, but it not be at the expense of our legacy residents. I would be remiss if I did not ask the mayor about scooters, something that we're all familiar with. So a listener in Grant Park asks, in January, the city passed an ordinance to keep electric scooters off the sidewalk and for the companies that own them to encourage riders to wear helmets. What is she doing to enforce these rules? Well, I I took a, a, a deep sigh. My son was out on a scooter this weekend and um, don't tell him, but I was tracking him on my Life360 app and it was very frightening that he was out and also very frightening that he was making some turns into some neighborhoods that he probably was completely oblivious as to where he was going. So I share that because there obviously there's this concern about scooters on our sidewalks um, But also, it's this great opportunity for connectivity, but also there are challenges that come with that because it creates an opportunity for people to get places that they otherwise wouldn't go with ease. But I think think it's important for people to remember that scooters, this is new technology for us. If you think about just even a couple of years ago with the creation of Uber and Lyft, we were having a conversation on how we regulated and what it means to the city, and and it it created a very different model. And fast forward a couple of years ahead, and it's something that people use quite frequently. So with scooters, it we really are trying to address the challenges that we have in real time, and we have regulations that relate to. Um, speed limits and and with them being on sidewalks and if they aren't cleaned up from the sidewalks then people then potentially uh, the owners can be fined and their license revoked etc but this really is a work in progress and for all of the laws and regulations that we have we know that there will always be kinks that need to be work through. But I think that we have to look at the positive aspect of scooters. It allows people who otherwise may not have transportation to be able to get around our city. But also, I think that we have to continue to monitor where we are with scooters and and make sure that people are using them responsibly.
Okay, so let's talk about green space. Marie Maurer asks on Facebook, what initiatives are being implemented to preserve green space and our forests in and around the city of Atlanta? We have signed on to a pledge with mayors across the country that essentially has said that we are working to have green space within a 10-minute walk of every resident in the city of Atlanta. I live in an MPU with the dubious distinction of being the only MPU in the city that does not have green space. So I think part of it has to do with, one, making sure that we continue to acquire green space in all of our communities. Um, But secondly, making sure that our parks are well maintained and have, uh, have the access and have the amenities that people want to be a part of. So we know that we have the uh, Bellwood, the Westside Park, Bellwood Quarry site coming online, which is going to be even bigger than Piedmont Park. It is going to be incredible. It is, uh, people may recognize it, The Walking Dead is often filmed there. And I think that as we expand parks, like Piedmont Park, and we have the Westside Park coming online, it's equally important that we also make sure that our smaller pocket parks within our communities are also accessible as well. Why don't you update us on the quarry before uh, we wrap up in just a couple of minutes? I didn't realize it's going to be bigger than Piedmont Park. It, it, it will be bigger than Piedmont Park, and it is beautiful. And it's also going to have a, it's a multi-purpose space because it will also have a 30-day water supply, emergency water supply. So it's going to be a beautiful feature in terms of just simply how it looks, but also we'll have this 30-day water supply and access to this park from our many of our West Side communities, including the Grove Park community. And so you think about what Piedmont Park means to Midtown, this West Side Park will now mean the exact same thing to our West Side communities. And it's in North... West Atlanta. It is in Northwest Atlanta. Beltline Spur. Yes. Okay. And it's a an an, an old uh, quarry where they used to get granite. So it's beautiful. It's cool. I think people would recognize it. It's also been in Stranger Things that quarry. Oh yes. Yeah. So people they probably know what it looks like based on uh, our our pop culture TV habits. And when you fly over it, you'll right, recognize exactly. it too. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, any final remarks uh, after this conversation? This has been great. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. This is um, as informative as anything in terms of things that we need to pay closer attention to because we now know what people actually care about. That is Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottom speaking with All Things Considered host Ricky Bevington. Their conversation is part of a new monthly series on Atlanta's most pressing issues that you can hear live on 88.5 FM in Atlanta. If you have questions for the mayor, you can submit them using the hashtag questions for Keisha on Twitter or email allatl at gpb.org. Stay with us for a look at how organizations across the state are working to alleviate food deserts. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. 
I'm Virginia Prescott, back with On Second Thought from GPB. Access to fresh, healthy food is not a given in Georgia. The U.S. Department of Agriculture tracks areas that are low income and have limited access to grocery stores. Those are also referred to as food deserts. Well, this month, GPB News is looking into creative local solutions to access issues in a series called Full Plates, How Georgia Fights Hunger. Today, we're hearing from two reporters who dug into what two communities are doing to get fresh food to residents. First up, GPB Emily Jones, who found that zoning laws have a lot more to do with hunger than we might think. And she's joining us from our Savannah Bureau. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Virginia. So your story looks at city zoning laws. How did that connect, that government function, with shopping for food? So the basic idea here is, you know, food deserts don't just happen organically. They're not they're not a natural phenomenon. Um, they arise because of a whole bunch of decisions that a whole bunch of people make, um, both governments and and others, you know, over the course of decades and decades that turn neighborhoods into places that grocery stores don't see as an attractive place to open a grocery store. Not enough people live there. Other businesses have failed. So zoning is a piece of that. Um, something else we hear a lot about redlining, um, which prevents uh, prevented over, again, a long period of time, um, loans and investment from going into certain neighborhoods, usually minority neighborhoods. Um, so all kinds of decisions like that over the course of decades um, is what actually created food deserts. You know, they're not, as I said, a natural phenomenon. Um, so, you know, it, it can take some government solutions to get grocery stores back into those places. Well, I'd love to hear your story on this and get to more <laughs> questions later. Here is what you filed for what Savannah is doing to address food deserts. Marsha Buford is driving around her neighborhood, West Savannah, pointing out the stores. Our boundary comes all the way down to this railroad track. Mm-hmm. And there's a convenience store gas station. You get a convenience store over here. There's another convenience store. I'm not sure how we classify shoes, but I think it's called a supermarket. There's nothing super about the market, okay? Notice a pattern? This majority black neighborhood is just under two miles from the shining gold dome of Savannah City Hall, but the nearest grocery stores are more than two and a half miles away. Hey, Lily Bell! <laughs> Buford is president of the Neighborhood Association, so she knows a lot of people and greets them as we drive by. I was bringing her through the neighborhood to show her we don't have a grocery store and we need one. Not enough people live here, Lily Howard says from her porch across the street. It makes things tough for residents like Howard and Varnell Middleton, who are sitting together. Got to go way up in Garden City to get a grocery store. Don't have no car. How you gonna get up there? I know I sure can't walk with that stick up there. We can walk to the grocery store. So how do you get a grocery store to open? It's complicated, but Lily Howard's right. They need people that are going to shop there. Period. Paula Chrysler is with Healthy Savannah, a group that promotes health and nutrition. We're not talking about high-rises. We're just talking about, you know, increasing the uh, number of people in a neighborhood will get a store in there in a heartbeat. A city's zoning ordinance affects how many people live in a neighborhood. Savannah's dates to 1960. Marcus Lotson of the Metropolitan Planning Commission says planners back then didn't account for things like food access. We know where the food deserts are in the city of Savannah. 
um, and we think we can address some of that with zoning. That means increasing density in some places, say, allowing more units in an apartment building in hopes more people will attract stores. It also means allowing stores where they didn't used to be because grocery chains are trying out smaller stores. Because some of these retailers are scaling down their size, now they can be placed in places where people live or, you know, closer to where people live. The new ordinance also prioritizes some types of stores over others. The main road bordering West Savannah, for instance, is currently a general business zone. Under the new rules, it would be a community business zone designed to serve a community-wide market area. That allows grocery stores but limits convenience stores and gas stations. Lawson says none of this will guarantee new grocery stores, but it could help. We still can't control the market, you know, and, and say, okay, grocery store A, we need you to set up a store right here. That would be great, but all you can really do is make it easy for them. The new zoning goes before the city council next month. If adopted, it would go into effect in September. For GPB News, I'm Emily Jones in Savannah. And Emily Jones with us now. Emily, we heard from Paula Chrysler there with Healthy Savannah talking about increasing the number of people in a neighborhood as a first step to attracting grocery stores. She also told you cities and grocery stores may need to go out on a limb. Here she is. You know, and maybe provide a low income, low interest loan uh, through the Small Business Development Center, through the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which is at the federal level. So if we can move that money into our community, uh, knowing and again, there are a lot of successful examples like that. So, Emily, are there any other examples of retailers who go out on a limb for the community and get food into their into their neighborhoods? In other cities, there definitely are. Uh, there are programs, she pointed to one, particularly in Philadelphia, where basically that exact idea she talked about, about, you know, getting a couple sort of grant programs and, and you know, organizations that, that can provide loans and that kind of thing to kind of join together and uh, provide loans and provide those kinds of incentives to try and get a grocery store in. Um, that was actually something that Marsha Buford, who you also heard in my story, there told me about an effort. Um, several years ago to try and get a grocery store in her neighborhood. And they were looking for that kind of, you know, some kind of loan, some kind of match. Um, and that ultimately fell through. But but I think there's a general sense that it's a model that has worked um, and that they, they hope could work in Savannah. Another thing that happened several years ago, a lot of people in Savannah will point to when you talk about food deserts is um, this a grocery store, a food line opened on the west side of, of town, just sort of outside of the downtown area. And it failed. It closed pretty quickly. Um, there were a lot of reasons for that. But uh, one of the reasons that Paula Chrysler told me was they didn't accept uh, SNAP benefits. They didn't accept, um, you know, what was formerly known as food stamps, uh, which when you're trying to serve a neighborhood where a lot of people uh, are of a lower income, qualify, rely on those benefits, um, you know, you have to think about things like that and you have to you have to offer that for people so that they can actually shop at your store. Well, it didn't work for Food Line, but there is a program in Savannah that will double the value of for of EBT cards, food stamps or SNAP benefits for people shopping in some cases. Here's Angela Guerrero talking about Farm Truck 912. I heard about this truck and they have varieties of different things to, you know, get my kids interested on eating, you know, different fruits and vegetables. So that's why I came, decided to come today. And plus on EBT, they said it's double. So it's more, I believe, like when you're on a budget, 
even on the food stamps. It's very good because sometimes the fruits and vegetables could be real pricey at the grocery stores. So she said she'd heard about this truck. What is it and how does this fit into the conversation about getting food to people in food deserts? Well, this truck is uh, part of the farmer's market, the Forsyth Farmer's Market that we have here in Savannah, which also I should note the farmer's market doubles EBT benefits as well. But it only happens once a week, Saturday, Forsyth Park, right in the heart of Savannah. Uh, So they have this program um, that also takes that same fresh produce that you can buy at the farmer's market, packs it all up in a refrigerated truck and takes it out daily throughout the rest of the week to neighborhoods that don't have grocery stores that might have a harder time getting to the farmer's market. And also, you know, you can buy vegetables on a Tuesday as opposed to having to wait till Saturday. Um, So they do that. They do that daily all around town. Um, And it's, you know, and even the people that that run this truck um, and that, you know, are involved with with getting it funded and that kind of thing told me like, it's kind of like a shorter term solution, like like this is a way that people are getting vegetables into these neighborhoods now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the city is also working. City and advocates are also working on kind of longer term solutions to get stores that will open and, and you know, really provide those things every single day for people. As JPB's Emily Jones in Savannah, she reported on how that city is using zoning laws to try and attract grocery stores in parts of town where they are most needed. JPB's Stephen Fowler also produced a story related to a mobile farmer's market and food deserts. He went to a homeless shelter in Rome with an urban farm in the background. The Davies Shelter Farm has been successful in feeding its clients. Now it's looking to expand, taking extra veggies to sell out in the community using a tricked-out school bus. Let's listen. Birds are chirping, a breeze is blowing, and chickens are clucking as a man named Lewis points to a small urban farm behind a fence. We're uh, out here enjoying the back door of nature. Lewis is a resident at the William S. Davies Homeless Shelter in Rome, about 70 miles northwest of Atlanta. He helped put in those fence posts around the farm that provides some of the food at the 16-bed shelter. It's crisp. It's very fresh. And I like the idea that it's grown with no GMOs, right? It's, and it's got natural fertilizers that they, they produce here. But there's more lettuce and carrots than the shelter needs, so Executive Director Devin Smith got an idea. Take the excess veggies and sell them in places around Rome where getting fresh food is difficult. As we walk past the chickens and Blackberry the rabbit, Smith tells me the farm bus reminds her of a biblical Hebrew term, Adama, or earth. And we talk uh, theologically in my framework that, that what we eat sustains us to do the work we're called to do in the world. And so if we reshape what we eat and how we eat, that that connects us more um, intentionally with the Creator God. For Smith, who's a deacon in the Methodist Church, expanding access to food in Rome is more than an idea, it's a calling, and there are plenty of places that need it. Down some wooden steps to the back side of the property, 23-year-old Emmy Cornell is exploring the literal side of Adama, picking bok choy and snow peas that will be later sold on the bus. She says that there are grocery stores around Rome, IGA, Aldi, Kroger, and the like. But then there are pockets like Maple Avenue where there are a couple convenience stores and there's really no place to 
get fresh food. Less than a mile down the road from Davies on Maple Avenue sits an empty Rite Aid that once upon a time housed a Piggly Wiggly. The Davies farm bus looks like your run-of-the-mill mode of transit as it lumbers down Rome streets. Inspired by a similarly-minded colonial bread truck in Savannah, students at Barry College turned a school bus into a mobile market, adding metal brackets on the outside to hold baskets, replacing seats with a sturdy countertop and shelves, and making sure the windows open outward so you can see the fresh fare. Everything about the farm bus is done with careful intention, including where it parks, Smith says. They sold out during their first excursion to Barry College, parking next to an elementary and middle school pickup line. And today... This is on a bus line, on purpose. We have it where folks who might be coming by on the bus or on foot, it's a pretty high-trafficked um, walking path. It's still a relatively new undertaking. Farm manager Emmy Cornell says the staff is relying on word of mouth and the sight of a bus covered in vegetables. I think people will come to recognize it and see it in the community and know that it is full of local produce, local products, supporting the shelter, but also um, local producers and other farmers around Rome. The farm bus is gearing up for a busy summer, planning to go out Tuesdays and Thursdays across the city in places where fresh food is scarce. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Rome. And Stephen's in the studio with us now. Stephen, outside of the bus, what does the fresh food landscape look like in Rome? Well, Virginia, I drove around Rome uh, after visiting with the farm bus and saw uh, there were the grocery stores mentioned, the IGA, the Publix, the other places, but they were in places that were easy for me to access in a car. Uh, Maple Avenue, like they mentioned in the story, actually the turn into the shelter, you have to drive past that abandoned former Piggly Wiggly, former grocery store. So, you know, it is, it's not that there aren't grocery stores there. It's that you have to have a certain level of transportation or access to get there. And for many parts of Rome, that's easier said than done. Yeah, similar to what we heard in Emily's story. And you did talk to a man in the shelter about the impact of the farm bus. He's one of the residents at the shelter. Let's hear him. Because it just not only... Uh, it does just so much to get us good food, but also uh, puts a name out there to help others that may be in need at one point or another. I'd love to hear more about the actual you know, mechanics or productivity of the farm. How big of a footprint are we talking about to be able to feed 16-bed homeless shelter and fill this school bus two days a week? Well, so most of the stuff is fresh vegetables. There's a giant mulberry tree that hangs over one of the beds in the back that provides the fresh berries, but it's a really small footprint compared to when you think farm, you think maybe big sweeping, you know, you take a while to walk, but, you know, it's about 16, 17, 18 raised beds that they've used. This uh, former Berry College student who runs the farm has used things like trap cropping and crop rotation and other technology and tools that she's learned to maximize the output of this for the bus to be able to go out two days a week to the community to not only feed the shelter, but feed the community. Yeah. So I want to bring Emily Jones back in and ask both of you, is there anything that you learned about food access doing these stories that had ever never crossed your mind before? Stephen, you're right in front of me. I'll ask you first. Well, uh, you know, in looking at this, you know, the term food desert and listening to Emily's story and my story, uh, there's the institution things that go behind access to food that 
are more than just there are no grocery stores or, you know, somebody needs a car to drive that just give a different perspective. But then with my story with the farm bus, it's a homeless shelter feeding its residents and the community of just, uh, you know, they had a donation of the land and donation of some of the bus and donation of some of the things that like just the little bit of effort that went into on the front end just exponentially grown to help the community on the back end. But not a market effort, which is an interesting point there. How about you, Emily? You know, we keep using the term food desert um, and something that that some of the advocates on this issue pointed out to me when I spoke with them about this story is they really don't like that term um, because it kind of implies, I mean, I use the term too, it's, it's all of us, but, um, you know, it kind of implies that it's a natural phenomenon like a desert, which it's not. And it also implies that these neighborhoods are deserts, they're wastelands, and they really aren't. I mean, driving around West Savannah, it's a community. Neighbors know each other. They say hello. There's a community center. It's not a desert at all. It's a it's a you know vibrant neighborhood. It just doesn't have a grocery store. Emily Jones in Savannah, thanks so much. Thank you. And DPB Stephen Fowler right here in Atlanta. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now we were both talking about our food series that's going on right now at GPB, and you can find out more at GPB.org. That is all we have time for today. However, On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. Interns Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please join us again tomorrow for more of On Second Thought right here on GPB. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.